I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket at dr-gen.com. Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg is a mother of three and a 20-plus year pediatrician, board certified, who has called all of her amazing advice and made a series of five-minute videos on everything from feeding and sleeping to safety and all types of parenting issues, which basically every parent out there can use, especially in the middle of the night when you can't reach your pediatrician. So this is like a must do. And she's offering a discount to everyone with code PIP20. PIP20 20 is the code to get 20% off of all of her modules. So definitely go to dr-gen.com and check it out. It's also on a link in my website too, zibbyowens.com. I'm here today with Bettina Elias Siegel, who's the author of Kid Food, The Challenge of Feeding Children in a Highly Processed World. Bettina is a nationally recognized writer and advocate on issues related to children and food policy. Her work has appeared in the New York Times and the Houston Chronicle, among other publications, and on her widely read blog, The Lunch Tray. She's a frequent guest on national media and was named one of the country's 20 most influential moms in 2015 by Family Circle. A graduate of Yale University and Harvard Law School, Bettina currently lives in Houston with her husband and two children. So welcome, Bettina. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. Kid food. This is like always on my mind. So I'm delighted to have an expert to tell me the way it really is. (laughs) I'm glad to be here and do that for you. Can you tell listeners, please, what kid food is about? Yes. So kid food is really my attempt to explain to parents why they may be feeling that it's very hard to raise healthy eaters today. If you're feeling that frustration, if you're feeling really challenged, I'm here to validate you. It Thank is you. <laughs> it is really hard. And so the book was my attempt to kind of explain in a little bit more detail what is going on, you know, in different contexts in children's lives. So everything from children's menus to what's going on in the school cafeteria to why is it that every adult seems to want to give your kid a treat, you know, at different times during the day for different reasons. And I kind of drill down into each one of those to educate parents. But then the ultimate goal of the book is really to empower parents. So I'm really trying to help them with any tools I can provide to navigate this very difficult food environment with their kid. And then on top of that, if they want to advocate, if they want to try to make it better, I also offer all kinds of advocacy tips and tools for that as well. So how did animal crackers lead you down this path? (laughs) The famous animal crackers incident. (laughs) So as I describe in the book, one reason, not the only reason, but one reason why I got interested in this area is that I attended a a meeting in Houston ISD, my public school system where I live. This was back in 2010. And I, I was joining a committee that was gathering parents' input about the school meal menus. And right away, I noticed that on our breakfast menu, the kids were required to take animal crackers four out of five days a week. And this is not the case anymore, I should say. And I raised my hand and I asked the nutritionist, like, what's with the cookies? And I should mention that the rest of the breakfast menu was also really sugary, highly processed, carby food, you know, like cinnamon buns and sugary yogurt. And the answer was so surprising. She said, well, you know, kids need to get a certain amount of iron every week, and the animal crackers provide the iron. And so I'm staring at her thinking like, what? You know, spinach provides iron and, you know, things like that. But what? And she said, well, it's the fortified white flour. And that comment just blew my mind. And and it really motivated me to learn more about the National School Lunch Program. Like, how could we have regulations that would permit that? Again, I need to interject, that system has changed the way we figure menus out. But that really led me down this road of learning more about the lunch program. And that knowledge coupled with 
all of these challenges I was facing as just as a mom of two young kids is what led me to start my blog, The Lunch Tray. And tell me about starting the blog. Tell me about the first time you sat down to write it, what you originally envisioned it as, and your reactions to what it became. Okay, so I am not a particularly spontaneous person, but this might have been one of the most spontaneous <laughs> decisions of my life. I, I went to lunch with some writer friends. I was in a writing group at that time. And I said to my friend Jenny, I said, you know, I'm learning all this stuff about school food. And, and, and I should mention at this time, my goal in life was to become a freelance magazine writer. I was a retired lawyer, stay-at-home mom, and looking for the new thing in my life. So, you know, this was just a little side activity. And I said, you know, I'm learning all this stuff about school food and just generally want to talk about kids and food. Do you think I should start a blog? And she's like, of course you should. And I literally went home that day, bought the domain, the lunch tray, set up WordPress, which I'd never used before. The next morning, wrote my first post, and that was it. And again, I I really expected this would just be like an amusing thing to keep me busy while I'm waiting for, you know, Glamour Magazine to call. (laughs) And, And instead, it just completely took over my whole life. It just changed the entire direction of my life, which is crazy. So the lunch tray grew and grew and grew. You became this huge advocate for reform in school lunches. How did that happen? So, you know, I always want to be very frank. You know, I'm not one of these bloggers who has like a million followers. I mean, Doesn't matter. You know, you know, but I'm just saying like, it's, it's always been this, this really lovely niche blog in that it right away just sort of found an audience of parents. And the other thing that really thrilled me was school food professionals started coming to the blog too. And I think because they sensed that I had done my homework and really understood their challenges and wasn't just bashing school food. They felt comfortable coming too. They knew they weren't going to get just kind of, you know, vilified. So it it just found this really lovely audience. And yes, so, you know, I, I won't go into all the details. I talk about it in my introduction, but because of the blog, like over time, I just got all of these opportunities to engage in all kinds of advocacy, both related to school food, but also other issues relating to, to kids and food. And I also got to, you know, write for other publications, write for the New York Times, you know, just all of these things sort of grew from it that gave me this really wonderful platform. I just never, ever expected. Another, another way into Glamour Magazine. Yes, exactly. Right. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew, right? So let's talk about some of the stuff in the book about okay. food. You have a part in the book where you say things like, I was feeding my kids, you know, Bell and Evans, chicken nuggets and Amy's pizza and feeling pretty good about myself. But dot, dot, dot. And then I read that and I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I feed my kids every week. Should I not admit this? Like, I don't feel guilty even about those chicken nuggets. Should I? No, no. And I really, I feel like I always have to say this. If you haven't yet opened kid food, you might assume, as a mom said to me at a book event I did on Thursday, I was so sure you were going to judge me. And I am so not judging anyone because I was there in the trenches and I was serving the chicken nuggets and the mac and cheese and all of that. So there's no judgment here at all. And I understand why parents resort to those foods. I, I get it. And the reason why I specifically mentioned, you know, Bell and Evans and Amy's is, is just to make the point that I had kind of conveniently convinced myself that, well, if it's coming from Whole Foods, I'm doing this great thing. And, you know, we have to really be realistic with ourselves. If it's a Tyson's chicken nugget or a Bell and Evans chicken nugget, it's still a chicken nugget. And the point is there's nothing wrong with those foods at all. They, you know, they're delicious and and we can enjoy those foods. But I think what parents need to think about a little bit is how they're offering them. So the way I would put it is if you said, hey, kids, our family dinner tonight is mac and cheese, fried chicken, and salad, and everyone sat down to that meal, that's a delicious meal. And maybe you're not going to eat that every night, but that's a perfectly fine way to feed your family. 
what you want to watch out for is, hey, kids, dad and I are having salmon and broccoli, but I know you won't eat that. Mm. So here are your chicken nuggets and your mac and cheese. Then you've sent a very different message to your children about food and what food they should or can eat, what, you know, their readiness to embrace healthier food. That's where I think parents need to pause. Like, what am I teaching my kids with these foods? And you address in your book the very picky eater nature of many kids. Yes. There's a term for it. What was it called? Neo, food neophobia, how kids are afraid of new foods. Right. So we often just resort to, you know, default kid menu type things. Exactly. So tell me why we should not be doing this. Well, so... Well, let let me just say one thing about food neophobia, because I I feel like if you get nothing else out of this book, I feel like I'm doing this public service to tell parents of really young kids like babies or, you know, early toddlerhood that I did not know this. And I would love to have known this when my kids were little, that all toddlers go through a period of food neophobia. Even if you had that baby that was happily eating every puree that you gave them, they're going to go through a period where they suddenly back off and get reluctant. And if someone had told me that, I would have known like, oh, this is just a normal stage of childhood, you know, just like newborns keep you up at night, you know, and potty training can be difficult. And you just, you just would roll with it. But if you don't know that that's coming, and I didn't, then you assume you have a picky eater. So to get to your question, you know, what you don't want to do is throw up your hands and stop offering healthier foods and say, well, my kid will only eat noodles and pizza. So I'm just going to go that route because it's easier. You have to just take the long view, stay the course, and they will eventually come around. But you, you know, it's very understandable why parents often, you know, want to just give up. But I feel like I know some grownups with food needs. <laughs> <Just, laughs> yes. Like, how do you know when the phase is over? Right, right. That's it's tricky, right? It is tricky. It is tricky. And, and you know, I'm always very open about the fact that, you know, I'm not a child feeding expert. There are people no, who I are know, and I, trained I in this. No, 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 not at all. I mean, I talk about it in the book, and I'm glad to talk about it. But I do want to let everyone know that if you really are worried, like, hey— you know, you're reassuring me, but my kid hasn't eaten a vegetable in three years and I'm really worried about it. I I point you in my appendix to all kinds of experts who I have known for a long time or, you know, really, really trust and whose books are fantastic and who can really help you get over that hump. Make sure your kids are on a reasonably healthy path as you're, you know, working toward their, you know, expanding their palates. So, you know, just want to give that caveat. (laughs) Can we talk a little bit about sugar? Because you also talk about this in the book and you say that you do feed your kids treats and that's okay and it's moderation and obviously we know all this from the news and blah 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 but how do you think sugar affects kids like how much is too much like give me some sort of roadmap as a parent of sugar loving kids so so here's the the thing (laughs) so we didn't used to have like really firm guidance on how much added sugar is too much for kids but now the American Heart Association has said kids should not be getting more than four to six teaspoons of added sugar a day And I got to tell you, that's not very much added sugar. And, you know, I would encourage parents to keep that number in mind, but it's, it's tough. It's really tough to adhere to that quota. It's like breakfast time. We've already blown through the quota. (laughs) Exactly. I'm done for the day. It's like nine (laughs) o'clock. Exactly. And, and, and truly one real societal problem is school breakfast for all kinds of reasons that I explain in the book. 
can be particularly sugary. So kids can get like three times that quota just at their school breakfast. So I, I totally feel that. And and as I say in the book, and as you just said, I'm not anti-sugar. I love sweets. I love sharing them with my kids. I think what we really have is, is more of a societal problem, putting aside what you do in your own home. And I'm not telling anyone not to bake cookies with their kids or have a little dessert every night. It's really outside our homes where kids are getting inundated with sugar. And one thing I did in the book is I devoted a whole chapter. It's called Just One Treat. And I take a hypothetical fourth grader like through her typical day. And I show all the ways in which she gets just one treat from different adults or different situations in her life. And by the end of the day, just from the treats outside your home, not the dessert you're serving them, not even the school meal, they could get three times as much sugar as they're supposed to have. So I really think, you know, certainly parents have a role to play and we should be reading labels and not go crazy with sugar. But I think really we have more of a societal problem that we need to be looking at in terms of the degree to which our children are just blooded with sugar. And also, I feel like maybe reasoning with the kids a little bit. I mean, do you think that's a lost cause? Well, I mean, I think, you know. <laughs> or it depends I, on the age. I, guess. I think it depends on the age. And you don't want to, like, you know, make anything taboo because that can always backfire. I think it's perfectly okay to, to explain to kids that, you know, treats are a, a normal and happy and wonderful part of life, but they are treats. So, you know, the baseline of what we should eat is healthy. And then, you know, the occasional food should be treats. And so, you know, some people use like a, a red, green, yellow system to explain food to kids. Like, you know, these are the green light foods that we can eat as much of any time. And these are the yellow that we might want to just go easy on. And the red, this is the sort of thing we should have just once in a while. You know, that's a very simple way of explaining it to children that I think they can understand. And you had something really funny in your acknowledgement section about your own kids. And I just <laughs> wanted to read this funny quote. You, you thanked your kids for their help. And you said, I know it wasn't easy, always easy being my kids, especially back when I was trying to get birthday treats out of your school classrooms or refusing to bring Gatorade to soccer practice like everyone else. Oh, my God, Mom. Yes. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about this, because we are all familiar with the kid eye roll at this point. Absolutely. So how did, how did this research and you know, societal digging into food, culture, and habits affect your own family? Well, it was hard. And and, and that's that's why that's why I'm so empathetic with parents, because I've walked this walk too. And it's so hard to say to your kid, every other mom or dad is bringing Gatorade when it's their turn for soccer snack, and I'm bringing water, and I'm just sorry, but that's what I'm doing, and here's why. It, it is extremely difficult. And what I think is that in that situation, it's not so much that they want the Gatorade, it's that they just want to be like everybody else. They don't want to be set apart. You know, you know how kids care about that so much. And so that's part of why I wrote the book, because... It's almost more of a cultural and societal issue than your kid just wanting that. Like another example is the birthday cupcake. Kids typically want the birthday cupcake brought in because everyone else is bringing in the birthday cupcake. But if the teacher had said or the principal had said, we just don't do cupcakes, the way we celebrate birthdays in this classroom is you get to pick story for story hour, they wouldn't think about cupcakes. You know, so in other words, there are these cultural factors that make it so hard for parents to swim upstream. And so one goal in writing the book is to, to think about maybe we could change the culture. Maybe we could talk to the soccer coach and say, look, here's the research on why kids don't need Gatorade. And actually, crazy statistic, kids who play team sports eat more junk food than kids who don't, partly because of these snacks. And another crazy statistic, kids often will consume more calories in the snack and beverage at, at a sports event than they'll burn off on the field. So, you know, if we could change change it at the top and the soccer coach says to everyone, we're just bringing water, then that takes it off parents' shoulders because it is very hard to buck the system. My gosh, my son did travel baseball for one season 
That is like the eating mech. All he did was like sit and I mean, when you're not at bat, you're sit. he sat and ate there and then like stood around the field. I was like, well, how is this exercise? Like I'm getting more exercise pacing, wondering when this game is going to end. Then anyway, so I, I get it. How have you found the reaction to this to be? Have you felt like soccer coaches are open to this idea? So, you know, I'm not in any way pretending that this is always easy, but I do everything I can to support parents. One chapter in the book is called Pushing Back, and it's just devoted to parent face-to-face advocacy, which I, I say in the book, completely frankly, I find that really scary and hard. I've been on national television doing battle with McDonald's, and that was less scary to me than it would be to go to my soccer coach and say, can we just have water? So I really get that this can be scary for parents. So I created these 14 rules not just from my own experience and my many mistakes, but also talking to a number of other really successful parent advocates. And I think those rules are really sound, good advice. And I even, in the case of soccer snacks specifically, I refer you to a colleague of mine named Sally Kuzemchak, who blogs at Real Mom Nutrition. She has made cleaning up sports snacks her thing and has a whole guide, sample letters you can give to the coach, ways to get other parents on board with you, because it's always better if you have allies instead of going alone. So I really really do everything I can to make it easier and and less intimidating for parents. I feel like your tips are good, not just for food advocacy. I feel like they're good for anything, like I anything so. you want to fight for or change in, in any environment. It could just be like something you want to change in your work environment or one little thing at the school or something. Like, I, think I think they're so. good tips. You can take them anywhere. Really. Exactly. Because, you know, th- things like don't go over people's heads and, you know, be, be respectful. Like those are all things that, yes, absolutely. We can use in lots of areas of our lives. And you have this 50 page free ebook called Guide to Getting Junk Food Out of our, Out of Your Child's Classroom for anyone who signs up for your mailing list at the lunch tray. And I downloaded it and I was like, I feel like I should send this to the headmaster at my kids' schools. You are welcome to do that. <laughs> and I hope, I hope they pay attention. I mean, the book was not meant for, you know, hand this over to your, to your school. It was really meant to empower parents to talk to their school. But, you know, absolutely, if you want to, like, you know, let them know about the book and have them download a copy... You know, absolutely. <laughs> but but there, and there is one thing in the book that that I that originated on my blog called the the lunch trays food in the classroom manifesto. Mm-hmm. Not to make me sound like a radical crazy person, but I was so fed up with the amount of junk food in my kids' classrooms, and I just wrote a little manifesto on like why this is problematic. And I've been told that parents have printed that out and brought that with them to meetings, and I and it's really gratifying to hear that that's become this very helpful sort of point of discussion with their schools. It's so inspiring to know that you can like have any impact on a societal problem. I mean, I know that sounds silly, but there's so many things that maybe aren't going the way ideally in our heads we would want them. And you're just like taking a stab and like chunking, tinking away at it and saying like, you might not change the entire system, but you're devoting your professional life to this. It's amazing. I'm trying, you know, and as I say at the end of the book, you know, the magnitude of the, of this problem, our children's very unhealthy food environment, you know, can you just almost want to throw up your hands because it feels so huge. But the, but the silver lining in that is it is so huge that every one of us can do something. And, and, you know, some parents, I understand you're busy, you're tired, you're raising your kids. Maybe you don't want to be like the fiery activist. I get that. I didn't want to be a fiery activist when I started. But you can take on something really, really small. It could just be in your own home. You know, what we talked about, not serving kid food and, and having everyone sit down to the same meal. It could be taking on the teacher who's passing out candy, just a really limited context that can make a real difference. Or maybe you're going to get fired up and want to go, you know, improve school food, which is a huge thing. So I think there's a role for all of us in our homes and outside our homes. 
That's, that's awesome. Wait, so tell me like two seconds about how you wrote this book yourself. Like, when did you write this book? How did you find time? Like, when did you, how did you get it all done? When did it become a book for you? So, you know, I have been blogging at the lunch almost for 10 years now. And I adore blogging. It's such a fun medium. You know, it's instantaneous. You have an idea, you post it, you're talking about it with people. It's wonderful. But I started to feel frustration because there's only so much you can do in a blog post. You don't want to wear out your blog reader. They're not expecting a a tome, you know. And I felt like I've been doing this for so long, talking to parents, talking to food policy people, talking to school food professionals. I'm so privileged to kind of be at this like kind of perch over all of that and starting to get this really big picture. And I just started to, you know, have this urge. I want to share the big picture now. And so that's really what motivated me to write a book proposal and, and ultimately, you know, write the book. Um, I will say I, I it was hard. It was harder than I thought it would be. I've been blogging so long. I had all this hubris, like this will just, I can write this in a month, you know. And it was, it was hard. It was hard to learn how to write a book. It, it was a real learning curve for me. But in the end, a, a fantastic one. I so enjoyed doing it. How long did it take to write the book? So this is really funny. They gave me 18 months to write the book. And I remember being on the phone with them and saying, oh, ha, 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 you know, I can get it done in four months. You know, don't worry about it. And and 21 months later, I handed in the, the manuscript and everyone was furious at me because oh, I was no. late. Um, I will say there was a long period where I was, even though I had chapter outlines and thought I knew exactly what I was doing, the minute I sat down to write it, I realized, I don't know what I'm doing here. And I have such a mountain of material that I share with you, but my utmost goal was, I want this to be a book a parent could literally bring on vacation. You know, I want it to be readable and hopefully entertaining at points and not in any way like a wonky slog, you know. And figuring out how to organize that and make that flow turned out to be so hard. And I actually credit my um, breaking through that, you know, writer's block to a friend of mine who mentioned, I've never watched Homeland, but even I know that in Homeland, Carrie has this crazy wall where she has a million things on the wall. She's like, you need a wall of crazy. And I was like, okay. So I went and got all these like poster boards and post-its and just plastered my office with that. And that actually moving the post-its around and, you know, it it helped me kind of visually conceptualize the book. And that was a huge help in, in kind of getting myself going. And what is coming next for you now? You have this book out in the world, almost. Yes. Right? Like, no, it's out. Yeah. It's out. Yes. I don't know. It's a huge question for me. I don't know what's going to happen next. I, I feel like this is the culmination of something and I feel so proud of it. And I don't really know where I'm going That's next. Okay. So we'll find out. I mean, it's kind of like having a baby. Like it's so miserable when you're in the middle of labor and the minute you have that baby, you're like, I can have another one. So I sort of feel like maybe I'll write another book. But but also I, I feel like, you know, I want to keep up my blog and I want to keep up my advocacy. And I just, and, and one thing that I really have loved is just directly engaging with parents through the book. So I really don't know. We'll see. That's okay. Yeah. I feel like maybe I should stop asking authors that question. Do they all say like, I have no clue? No, because I'm, I'm <laughs> interested because I'm interested if people are going to do a second book right. or, a fifth, or a fifth, tenth book, right. whatever, if they decided that was terrible, I never want to do another right. book. If they want to now go into screenplays, if they're like, I'm done with this, I'm going to like go get a degree. And I don't know, you just never know what people are doing next. I know, I and know. Want, and nothing, like, it's okay if there's no next project. Like, I don't care. I'm just curious, like, what's up with you? What, you know, <laughs> right. what, what comes after this? Because I feel like publishing a book is like, 
the goal, right? And yes. then, but that's not the end. Right. Then, but then what? You get then, this big then yeah. what, right? Yeah. And and I will say, just as I said that, you know, I'm not a spontaneous person. And then I started this spontaneous blog and it led to this crazy and wonderful life path. I kind of trust in that now a little bit more. Like my, my lordly logical side has calmed down. And I'm like, you know what? I trust that this will lead to the next thing. I really do feel it will lead to the next thing, whatever that is. And what uh, what advice would you have to both aspiring authors and also just the mom out there who's struggling today and planning on feeding their kids chicken nuggets like perhaps <laughs> I am tonight <laughs> for dinner? <laughs> no judgment, no, no judgment. judgment. Okay, so to aspiring writers, I guess I would just say you've got to write. You've got to make yourself write and find outlets to do that. And it's funny, I know you told me you had taken a media bistro class yes. when that existed. I took a media oh, bistro class too, yes. you know. And I think having a writer's group, like other people, other aspiring writers is really helpful. One other thing that really helped me write this book when I was in such a jam was I was trying to do it in a vacuum. I wasn't showing my pages to anyone and I was getting really like freaked out about the process. And and finally, um, this is so funny, uh, Paula Darrow, who you know, yes. your media yes, teacher, yes. who's a dear friend of mine, out of the blue, we don't talk that often on the phone, out of the blue, she called me and she said, what's going on with you? I haven't heard from you. What's going on with the book? And it was like, she knew. And I was like, I'm freaking out. What do I do? And she's like, you can't write in a vacuum. You need to get feedback. And so I started sending my pages to her and another dear friend who's a writer and editor. And that broke the logjam too, like just getting feedback. So I think that's really important. If you're an aspiring writer, don't try to go it alone. It's really helpful to get feedback from, from people you trust and respect. And then as for the mom who's, who's worried and struggling and reaching for the chicken nuggets, I mean, first of all, I would say, please don't be yourself up. You know, one of the biggest goals of this book was just for me to validate you. You are not crazy. This is hard. You know, you are doing your best and and there are forces in this world, powerful forces in some cases that are working against you. And so don't beat yourself up. Tomorrow's another day. And hopefully if you read my book, you'll, you'll, you know, walk away educated and hopefully feeling like you can navigate this a little bit more easily. That's my goal. Well, Check for your goal. I feel like you gave everybody really specific, actionable, easy to follow tips and tools and information. And it's great. It's, well, it thank you. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the award-winning podcast. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books was sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket by Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg, dr-gen.com. Enter code PIP20, PIP20, for 20% off of these can't-miss modules that will make your parenting life so much easier. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 